Section 29 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manikt Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 27. Russian Reaction and Jewish Emigration Part 2 3. The Triumph of Reaction With all their moderate and cautious phraseology, the conclusions of the Palen Commission, whose members, as hidebound conservatives, were forced to reckon with the anti-Semitic trend of the governing circles, implied an annihilating criticism of the repressive policy of that very government by which the commission had been appointed. From the loins of Russian officialdom issued the enemy who opposed it in its manner of dealing with the Jewish question. It must be added, however, that the opinions voiced by the commission in its memorandum were by no means shared by its entire membership. For while the majority of the commission were in favor of gradual reforms, the minority advocated the continuation of the old repressive policy. Owing to these internal disagreements, the Commission was slow in submitting its conclusions to the government. One more attempt was made to procrastinate the matter. At the end of 1888, the Commission invited a group of Jewish experts, being desirous, as it were, to listen to the last words of the prisoner at the bar. The choice fell upon the same Jewish notables of St. Petersburg who had displayed so little courage at the Jewish Conference of 1882. The cross-examination of these Jewish representatives turned on the question of the internal Jewish organization, the existence of a secret kahal, the purposes of the basket tax, and so on. Needless to say, the replies were given in an apologetic spirit. The Jewish experts renounced the idea of a self-governing communal Jewish organization and pleaded merely for a limited communal autonomy under the strict supervision of the government. True, a few of the questions referred besides to the legal position of the Jews, but this was done more as a matter of form. Everybody knew that the opinion of the majority of the Commission favoring cautious and gradual reforms did not have the same prospect of success as the views of the anti-Semitic minority which advocated the continuance of the old-time repressive policy. Soon, the worst apprehensions proved to be true. Count Tolstoy, the reactionary minister of the interior, blocked the further progress of the plans formulated by the Palen Commission, which should have been submitted in due course to the Council of State. There were persistent rumors to the effect that Alexander III, being decidedly in favor of continuing the policy of oppression towards the Jews, had attached himself to the opinion of the minority of the Palen Commission. According to another version, the question was actually brought up before the Council of State, and there, too, the anti-Semites proved to be in the minority, but the Tsar drew the weight of his opinion on their side. The project of the Commission, being out of harmony with the current government policies, 
was disposed of at some secret session of leading dignitaries. The labor of five years was buried in the official archives. As for the Jews themselves, they were at no time deceived about the effects that were likely to attend the work of the High Commission. They clearly understood that if the government had been genuinely desirous of revising the system of Jewish disabilities, it would have stopped, for a time at least, to manufacture new legislative whips and scorpions. The dark polar night of Russian reaction reigned supreme. There seemed to be no end to these orgies of Russian night wars, the Poviet Donoschev and Tolstoy's, who were anxious to resuscitate the savagery of ancient Muscovy and who kept the people in the grip of ignorance, drunkenness, and political barbarism. Everyone in Russia kept his peace and held his breath. The progressive elements of the empire were held down tightly by the lead of reaction. The press groaned under the yoke of ferocious censorship. The mystic doctrine of non-resistance preached by Leo Tolstoy was attuned to the mood prevailing among educated Russians, for in the words of the Russian poet, their hearts, subdued by storms, were filled with silence and lassitude. In Jewish life, too, silence reigned supreme. The sharp pangs of the first pogrom year were now dulled, and only suppressed moans echoed the uninterrupted silent pogrom of oppression. These were years of which the Jewish poet Shimon Fruk could sing. Round about all is silent and cheerless. Like a lonesome and desert-like plain, if but one were courageous and fearless, and would cry out aloud in his pain. Neither storm wind nor starshine by night, and the days neither cloudy nor bright. O my people, how sad is thy state! How gray and how cheerless thy fate! But in this silence, the national idea was slowly maturing and gaining in depth and in strength. The time had not yet arrived for clearly marked tendencies or well-defined system of thought. But the temper of the intellectual classes of Russian Jewry was a clear indication that they were at the crossroads. The titled intelligentsia reared in Russian schools who had drifted away from Judaism, was now joined by that other intelligentsia, the product of Heather and Yeshua, who had acquired European culture through the medium of neo-Hebraic literature and was in closer contact with the masses of the Jewish people. True, the Jewish periodical press in the Russian language, which had arisen towards the end of the 70s, had lost in quantity. The Razviet had ceased to appear in 1883 and the Ruski Yevre in 1884. The only press organ to remain on the battlefield was militant Voskot, which was the center for the publicistic, scientific, and poetic endeavors of the advanced intellectuals of that period. But the loss of the Russian branch of Jewish literature was made up by the growth of the Hebrew press. The old Hebrew organs, Ha-Melitz and Ha-Zephira, took on a new lease of life and grew from weeklies into dailies. Voluminous annuals with rightful claims, 
to scientific and literary importance such as Ha'asif, the harvest, and Knesset Israel, the community of Israel in Warsaw, and other similar publications began to make their appearance in Russia. New literary forces began to rise from the ground, though only to attain their full bloom during the following years. Taken as a whole, the ninth decade of the 19th century may well be designated as a period of transition from the older Haskalah movement to the more modern national revival. 4. American and Palestinian Emigration as for the emigration movement, which had begun during the storm and stress of the first pogrom year, this passive but only effective protest against the new Egyptian oppression proceeded at a slow pace. The Jewish emigration from Russia to the United States served as a barometer of the persecutions endured by the Jews in the land of bondage. During the first three years of the 80s, the new movement showed violent fluctuations. In 1881, there were 8,193 emigrants. In 1882, 17,497. In 1883, 6,907. During the following three years, from 1884 to 1886, the movement remained practically on the same level counting 15,000 to 17,000 emigrants annually. But in the last three years of that decade, it gained considerably in volume, mounting in 1887 to 28,944, in 1888 to 31,256, and in 1889 to 31,889. The exodus from Russia was undoubtedly stimulated by the law imposing a fine for evading military service and by the introduction of the educational percentage norm, two restrictions which drew into bold relief the disproportionate relation between rights and duties in Russian Jewry. In the empire of the Tsars, the Jews were denied the right of residence and the privilege of a school education, but forced at the same time to serve in the army. In the United States, they at once received full civil equality and free schooling without any compulsory military service. It goes without saying that the emigrants who had no difficulty in obtaining equality of citizenship were nevertheless compelled during their first years of residence in the New World to engage in a severe struggle for their material existence. Among the emigrants who had come to America in those early years, there were many young intellectuals who had given up their liberal careers in the land of bondage and were now dreaming of becoming plain agriculturalists in the Free Republic. They managed to obtain a following among the emigrant masses and founded, in the face of extraordinary difficulties and with the help of charitable organizations, a number of colonies and farms in various parts of the United States, in Louisiana, North and South Dakota, New Jersey, and elsewhere. After a few years of vain struggling against material want and lack of adaptation to local conditions, 
a large number of these colonies were abandoned, and only a few of them have survived until today. In the course of time, the idealistic pioneer spirit which had animated the Russian intellectuals gave way to a sober realism which was more in harmony with the conditions of American life. The bulk of the emigrant masses settled in the cities, primarily in New York. They worked in factories or at the trade, the most important of which was the needle trade. They engaged in business, in peddling and in farming, and lastly, in the liberal professions. Many an immigrant passed successfully through all these economic stages before obtaining a secure economic position. The result of all these wanderings and vicissitudes was a well-established community in the United States of some 200,000 Jews who formed the nucleus for the rapidly growing new Jewish center in America. One of the active participants and leaders in this movement, who had in his own life experienced all the hardships connected with it, concludes his account of the emigration to the United States at the end of the 80s with the following words. No one who has seen the poor, downtrodden, faint-hearted inhabitant of the infamous pale with the Damocles sword of brutal marble dangling constantly over his head, shaking like an autumn leaf at the sight of an inspector or even a plain policeman, who had seen this little Jew transformed under the influence of the struggle for existence and an independent life into a free American Jew who holds his head proudly, whom no one dared to offend, and who has become a citizen in the full sense of the word. No one who has seen this wonderful transformation can doubt for a moment the enormous significance of the emigration movement for the 200,000 Jews that had found shelter in America. Idealistic influences rather than realistic factors were at work in the Palestinian colonization movement, which proceeded on a parallel line with the American emigration as a small stream sometimes accompanies a large river. The ideas preached by the first lovers of Zion were but slowly assuming concrete shape. The pioneer colonists in the ancient fatherland met with enormous obstacles in their path. The opposition of the Turkish government which hindered in every possible way the purchase of land and acquisition of property, the neglected condition of the soil, the uncivilized state of the neighboring Arabs, the lack of financial means and of agricultural experience. Despite all these drawbacks, the efforts of a few men led to the establishment in the very first year of the movement in 1882 of the colony Zion near Jaffa. Subsequently, a few more colonies were founded, such as Ekron and Gedera in Judea, Yeshot Hamala, Rosh Pina, Zikron Jacob in Galilee, the last two founded by Romanian Jews. Called into life by enthusiasts with inadequate material resources, these colonies would have scarcely been able to survive had not their plight aroused the interest of Baron Edmund Rothschild in Paris. Beginning with 1884, the Baron, pursuing purely philanthropic aims, gave his support to the colonies, 
spending enormous sums on cultivating in them the higher forms of agriculture, particularly wine growing. Gradually, the baron became the actual owner of a majority of the colonies which were administered by his appointees, and most of the colonists were reduced to the level of laborers or tenants who were entirely in the hands of the baron's administration. This state of affairs was unquestionably humiliating and almost too hard to bear for men who had dreamed a free life in the Holy Land. Yet, there can be no doubt that under the conditions prevailing at the time, the continued existence of the colonies was only made possible through the liberal assistance which came from the outside. The progress of the Palestinian colonization, slow though it was, provided a concrete basis for the doctrines preached by the lovers of Zion in Russia. The propaganda of this Hobebe Zion, the Hebrew equivalent for lovers of Zion, who acknowledged as their leaders the first exponents of the territorial restoration of Jewry, Pinsker and Lillian Bloom, led to the organization of a number of societies in various cities. Towards the end of 1884, the delegates of these societies met at a conference in the Prussian border town Katowice, such a conference being impossible in Russia, in view of the danger of police interference. On that occasion, a fund was established under the name of Maskret Moshe, a memorial to Moses in honor of the English philanthropist Sir Moses Montefiore, whose hundredth birthday was celebrated in that year. The fund, which formed the main channel for all donations in favor of the Palestinian colonies, was administered by the two Hobebe Zion centers in Odessa and Warsaw. The movement, which had been called into life by representatives of the intelligentsia, succeeded in winning over several champions of rabbinical orthodoxy, among them Samuel Mohilever, the well-known rabbi of Bialystok. Their affiliation with the new party was largely instrumental in weakening the opposition of the orthodox masses, which were inclined to look upon this political movement as a rival of the traditional messianic idea of Judaism. The lack of governmental sanction hampered the Hobebe Zion societies in Russia in their activities, and the funds at their disposal were barely sufficient for the upkeep of one or two colonies in Palestine. Realizing this, the Conference of the Lovers of Zion, which met at Druskeniki in 1887, decided to apply to the Russian government for the legalization of Hobebe Zion organization, a consummation which was realized a few years later in 1890. Thus did, during the first decade of the war waged by the Tsars against their Jewish subjects, the tide of Russian Jewish emigration slowly rolled towards various shores until a fresh storm in the beginning of the new decade whipped its waves to unprecedented heights. Whereas in the course of the 80s, the Russian government wished to give the impression as if it merely tolerated the departure of the Jews from Russia, although in reality it was the ultimate aim of its policies in the beginning of the 90s, it suddenly cast off its mask and gave it public sanction to a Jewish exodus from the Russian Empire. 
as if to strengthen the effect of this sanction, the Jews were to taste even more fully the whip of persecution and expulsion than they had done during the preceding decade. End of section 29